Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. If you know chunks of this Parsha, you most likely know the piece is talking about different holidays, um, which, which is a substantial chunk of this week's Parsha. But why do the stuff you know when we can do something much more obtuse and confusing? Um, so we're going to be picking up in chapter 24. It's not the beginning of the chapter, but the beginning of the chapter doesn't necessarily give you all that much context for what we're actually going to be looking at. Um, the beginning of the chapter is talking about sort of components of what the priestly service uh, would uh, would entail, that there would be oil that was brought for lighting things in the camp. Uh, for laying things in the tent, rather, um, to make sure, and the sort of various offerings that would be happening, the bread, the frankincense um, on Shabbat to help dedicate that day, um, and that, that that bread was specifically set aside for Aaron, and that doesn't much help you for what we're actually going to be looking at now, unless, Rabbi Schatz, I'm missing a major connector for what we're actually going to be talking about. Negative. Great. So here we go. Vayetze ben Isha Yisraelit. And a son of an Israelite woman went out. Vehu ben Ishmitri. And he was also the son of an Egyptian man. Betoch ben Israel within the people of Israel. So, so we're going to be hopping into this brief chunk of narrative with this very interesting description of a person. Vayinatsu b'machana, ben ha-Yisraelit ve-ish ha-Yisraeli. And there broke out in the camp a fight between the son of the Israelite woman and an Israelite man. We don't have names for either of these people. We don't know why they're fighting. We just know that this is something that's happening. Vaikov ben ha'isha ha'Yisraelit et Hashem vaikalel, and the son of the Israelite woman, um, the 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 verbiage in this translation is is uh, not fantastic because it it gives you one verb but it's really two, right? The the vaikov I would kind of translate as. Like he, he, it's like he blasphemed and he cursed, right? Like he, he blasphemed, uh, the name and he cursed. It, 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 it's translated as pronounced the blame and blasphemy, but I would say it's sort of a, a two, uh, it's, a, it's a two-hander there. Vayavu Oto El Moshe, and they brought him to Moses. Vishem Imo Shlomit Bat Divri Lamatedam. And oh, by the way, the name of his mom was Shlomit, daughter of Divri, and she belonged to the tribe of Dan. You know, very smooth set of narrative clauses here. And he was placed in, in custody in like, like Shomer, like a place where he was sort of kept, um, away from others. So that until, uh, until a decision could be made clear from God, until the decision of the Lord. Pretty straightforward, I think. Right, Rabbi Schatz? 
Super straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Great verses. Um, For those keeping score at home, chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. I also told them that before you got on. Okay. So. um, This is why I asked. Yeah, no, I know. I just forgot. Leaving me hanging. You, well, you caught me in a very frazzled moment. Okay. Um, So. Let's do some kushiot. If you can raise your hand, I will ask you to unmute, um, and that way we can uh, hear everyone one at a time. Yeah, Renee, I, I asked you to unmute. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so first of all, what they gave? They, she had a name, and now her name became Shlomit. But what about before she had no name? She was an unknown. That's one right. question. And the other right. question was, why was he separated? The kid separated when, if his mother was an Israelite. Did was it not the case back then also that the kid be, was followed in the mother's? Great, steps, great. Wouldn't he also have been an Israelite even though the father was Egyptian? Yeah, awesome. Isn't it the case that matrilineal descent was something that we believed in back then also, not just in 2021? Um, and back to the first question that you asked: Is the Israel is the mother in the first sentence? You know, in verse 10. The same as the second, and why then didn't we know her name in the first if we know her name in uh, verse 10? Why not in verse 11? Great. Joanna, go ahead. So more on that, like, it's fascinating to me all the times that we comment in, um, as we read through the Bible, where we don't have a woman's name. We don't know Lot's wife's name. We don't know Noah's wife's name. And here, in this incident you know this happens to be a place where we know the wife's name yeah and yet it really this episode is focusing on the son and we don't know his name great great I that was one of the questions that I had as well and I have a a very uh well I don't know if it's so interesting but a, a commentary to share on that um and uh great so why is the son the one who kind of goes goes nameless, anonymous to us, as opposed to the the parent and the parent being the mother in this particular case. Bonnie. So I've had some of those same questions, but another one I had is, is the is, uh, Egyptian father with the group? With the group, meaning what? Well, is he amongst the Israelites at this moment or he is Got long it. past? We I mean, hear about right. the mom, but not the dad. Right, the right. right. He's still in the picture. Great. It's um, an answer to that question will come up also in an, in a commentary that I found, maybe also Rabbi Shapiro found. Uh, and it's so interesting that um, what our rabbis do to come up with stories to answer those kinds of questions, right? Like <laughs> you'll see yep. the answer that they give and you're like, what, what, huh? why, why did you have to go there? So um, you'll, you'll see what their response is, but yeah, it's a great point. Like, where is the dad? Who is the dad? How come we know more about the mom than the dad? Um, is he in the picture? Is he in, you know, in proximity to all of this? Great question. Uh, Jay and then Denise. Um, my question was more about, I was trying to think of how I would handle this. Maybe the rabbis decided not to mention the son's name because of the blasphemy. Mm-hmm. And um, a, mis- a misuse of a misuse of name leads to an elimination of a name. You're saying? Yeah, maybe they they didn't want us to know the name of the person because what he did was so horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question and and point. Yeah, uh, Denise, go ahead. Oh, I actually meant to lower my hand. 
Oh, you did lower your hand. I just thought that you knew that you were going to be called on. So I called on you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Joanna. So as I, you know, sort of continue to reread these verses, verses 10 and 11 almost seem like an insert. Um, and I have to say, because I've looked ahead one or two more verses, verse nine, you know, when it speaks in the generic, it almost feels like typical Torah, like we're going to tell you a certain law now. Should this ever happen? Here's what to do, right? Because following this little mini episode with this person, it tells what to do in this situation. And it almost, for reasons I can't fully explain, it feels like this is almost two different voices and there's been like an insert into the text here. Interesting. Um, Rabbi Shura, can you go up a second? Because I think Joanna was talking about verse nine into 10. I just want to be able to see it. Um, Is that what you're referring to, Joanna? No, sorry. Verse 10, right? So verse 10 in the generic. Sorry, I thought you said Verse 10 in in sort of this voice almost feels to me like it starts with a when. When this happens in your community. Yeah. Right? And then there's like this insert of a specific case. Yeah. And then the following verse tell, you know, says what to do. Interesting. As opposed to the opposite you're saying. Right. So, so this little incident um, of the specific Israelite um, feels almost like an insert into the text. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way before. That's very interesting. Elon, did you have, was that a hand or just your glasses taken, being taken off? Just my glasses being taken off. (laughs) Okay. Well, lovely glasses. Uh, Nancy. So I'm, I guess because it's so vague, it's like, why does it even matter the, the parentage of, of both of these people, right? Like what difference yeah. does it make? I mean, but the idea was the, the really horrible part was pronouncing the name in blasphemy. So what difference does it make that one person had a, um, you know, an Egyptian father and the other, uh, I'm guessing because it says Israelite did not. And then yeah. it's so vague that, it says the son of the Israelite woman. Well, they both had Israelite mothers. If the yeah. other one was an Israelite. So it just seems so incredibly vague. And like, why does it even matter? Right. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I'll put even a finer point on that question because it like, it's something that I notice in these verses too. It's like, isn't it assumed, right? Isha Israeli, the Israelite man. Like if there's yeah. two people, it's like, if I were to tell you, oh, there were, Two people walking down the street, someone who lives in Los Angeles and someone who just like, like, like you can just sort of assume if there's two people walking down the street, who like, yeah, they're, they live in Los Angeles because we're in Los Angeles. Like there was an Israelite and they were in the Israelite camp. So he was an Israelite. Did I mention he was an Israelite? Right. It just seems, you know, quite redundant. And as we, we keep coming back to in our time together, nothing's in there by accident. Yeah. Huh? Why is that there? I had, I did not even notice that until you just said it. I also did it. I mean, yeah. Interesting. And that's why it's fun to do this together. Karen. (laughs) Yeah. I'm totally lost. Great. Totally lost. Who's, what name was blasphemy? What? Yes. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. 
Oh, really? Then I'm yeah. not confused, I guess. Okay. You're not, you're not lost. I mean, you might be lost, but, totally. but you are asking the questions that, that none of us know the answers to, or at least are coming across as the most ambiguous of the claims in this um, piece. But you will let me know eventually. I, I believe so, yes. I mean, Rabbi Shapiro, on that, would you like to kick it off from there? Oh, I mean, I'm not going to be speaking to that necessarily, but I can. Oh, I can okay. Try. I thought. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll just say like it, it's it's a weird story, right? Like you know, if it, in it's not quite as um, uh, elliptic as when we looked at the bridegroom of blood story, right? A, a few. Yeah. Right, a couple, but but for me, it it's um, it's similar in terms of wait, who's there and what's happening, and that seems to be an extra verb, and why is that clause there? Right, like it's it's definitely um, it would it wouldn't get past the copy editor's desk in 2021, right? Like like it it just it doesn't seem to quite add up in terms of pronouns, titles, clauses, verbs, like like it's just an, an odd couple of verses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it, I, I think Rabbi Schatz and I are, are bringing different pieces, but I think each of our pieces is like trying to backfill the story, right? Like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like what, <laughs> what's actually going on here? Let's take yeah. a step back and try to figure out what's happening and why it's happening and, and what, and what the point of the story is, right? Like, yeah. like what's, what's the point of including this? All right. There are two dudes. They got into a fist fight. Somebody cussed, like who cares, it's, right? Well, like, and it's- Especially because it's also inserted, as you did in your little intro, it's inserted in such a random place. It's not like, oh, this follows an incident. It's like, let's talk about all these things that have to do with Shabbat. And then all of a sudden, let's talk about this three sentence story that really has nothing to do with anything else. But but this looks like a good place where we can insert it into this essay. Right. (laughs) So so it is an interesting. uh, Yeah, an interesting piece of context. All right. Why don't you do your midrash? Um, because it's it's just it's more whole than my little parts okay. of commentary. Cool. Um, All right. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do one chunk. Does everybody of this know that he got the DDD thing from Susan Nemitz? Because it's fantastic that they're both here, and I just want to acknowledge that. So anyway, continue. I think I was DDDing even before I met Susan. I think absolutely it's just one not. Of, I think no it's way. just one of them. Wait, Karen's very excited. Karen, what, what would you like to say? You do oh. DDD as well, Karen. No, but the oh. minute you said that, the minute it came out of your mouth, I knew where you got it from. Just saying. Susan Nemitz. Nemitz. Okay. Susan Clickfeld. I'm glad to be such a positive influence on all you folk. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. Always. always, I will go that far. Okay. I do pick up people's speech patterns very quick. Like Rabbi. When you like them. There's the Rabbi Rabbi Shots, for those of you who don't know, one of Rabbi Shots' go-tos is, oh, good. Like when something (laughs) is going south very quickly. Does that sound familiar to the folks on the call? It's like, like, like a program is collapsing or like there's no like Torah reader for Shabbat. Look at everyone nodding. I know. I can't believe Um, that. You are very known on this, on this call. And I have definitely picked up. It's like, you know, all of a sudden Rafi decides to start peeing outside while the other two boys run out into the backyard. And I hear myself saying, Oh, good. And oh, Rabbi Rebecca Shantz has now joined the the chat. 
But the best Rabbi Rebecca shots is um that that um Rabbi Matt Shapiro has picked up is nope. <laughs> That's a very good one. Okay, continue. Um, we will analyze everyone's speech pattern, everyone else's speech. That was pattern. it. Those were my two things. Okay. Um, th- there's two different pieces from Vayikra Raba that I'm going to take us into, um, which which are like related in terms of like I was saying, trying to to fill in some gaps in the story. Um, usually, I bring like Rabbi Schatz might be doing it shortly, like different disparate pieces. But I thought I thought this was interesting in terms of really giving like like a deleted scene almost from what was happening to try to help us understand what's going on based on like a word in the story and trying to understand what's happening. Right. So this is going to the very beginning of the verses because at the beginning of the verse, it says, ben isha Yisraeli. So like, if I were to say to you, and I came out of the place, you would of course then ask like, well, where, where, <laughs> where are you coming out of? Right. Like, and I left and then I went to, well, where were you leaving from? So there's a there's a few different answers, and I'm just going to bring one of them. Um, so it says, a son of an Israelite woman came out. From where did he go out? A logical question. And then parenthetically, surely not from the camp, right? He didn't. He wasn't leaving where they were camped out because then we hear just after that that the fight that broke out was in the camp. So where was he coming out of? Okay, Rabbi Chiyatot, he came out with an argument. He came out from an argument. He had gone to pitch his tent in the camp of the tribe of Dan, right? So we hear in the next verse that that's the tribe that that his mom is from. So this unnamed person who has an Egyptian father and an Israelite mom, he had gone to pitch his tent in that part of the camp. And they, the Israelites, said to him, what are you doing? What claim do you have to pitch your tent in this part of the camp? To which he then said, well, that's where my mom's from. I am one, uh, I'm from one of the daughters of the tribe of Dan. But they said to him, and here the Torah is quoting itself ahead of where the verse actually appears in the Torah. But the Torah quotes itself to this guy who's trying to do something saying, every man of the children of Israel shall encamp by his own standard, right? That, that it's about the father's lineage, not the mother's. So they're saying to him, this isn't your place. You don't belong here. So then he goes to court, right? He, he brings a, a formal legal complaint to Moses saying, what the heck? Where, where, where am I supposed to sleep, right? This should be my place. But it came out that that he was wrong and that actually wasn't his place. And so then he stood up and committed blasphemy. So all of this from one word, right? All of this from one word and the fact that it's kind of an elliptic narrative. We don't quite know what's happening. We don't quite know why he's doing what he's doing. But based on just that one word of yatsa, the Midrash is suggesting to us that sort of putting together the context clues of the story, what's happening here is that he's a person kind of on the fringes, right? He's a person who isn't like quite um, in the sort of standard model of what an Israelite. And he still wants and needs a place. 
So where does he go? And he petitions, he formally petitions to have his place. And he tells, no, that's why you don't have your place there. And so he does something kind of understandable. He's upset, right? Like what, what I like about this Midrash, I always think it's interesting when like the Midrash is giving us like this much backstory to, to something in the Torah. Uh, it ascribes a motivation to him that I think is interesting, right? He didn't blaspheme just because he felt like it. He didn't cuss just because he was having a bad day. He's not feeling like he's a part of the community. He's feeling like he, he doesn't belong. And so that's why he does this thing that he really shouldn't do. And so I think that that's like a fascinating sort of background story right filling in the gaps as midrash often does like a background understanding of of what's happening here and, and why it's happening i have another chunk from vaikra rabba that that i think is interesting and i like less but i really like this one um i'll pause there thoughts reflections like does that check out to you right like does that track if we like take that backstory and we try to like sort of insert it back into what we see happening in the Torah. Um, does, does that track? Yeah. Denise and then, um, and then Bonnie. So it tracks on the surface, but then I feel like, like when you look deeper, it doesn't track so much because it feels like the kind of thing that should have never escalated to this point, right? Because if this guy is growing up in the camp and his mother is Jewish and his father isn't. It's, by the time he's ready to go pitch his own tent and do its thing, I mean, he should sort of be imbued with understanding of how, what are the social rules of where he lives? Like, this shouldn't be a newsflash uh-huh. that these things go by the father. So it feels like there's feelings on all counts because right. the mother should have taught him that. The mother should have maybe recruited a guy to sort of take him under the wing. None of the men in the whole camp cared about this kid to teach him and take him on. And then this guy also, you know, he could have maybe stated his case in a better way if he framed it that way and gotten to Moses and said, hey, look, you know, I've been in limbo and I don't know what to do. Do you have any suggestions instead of just saying, here's what I'm doing and you got to accept it, you know, because. Even if someone has the most legitimate claim in the world, it's just kind of human nature that that doesn't go over well yeah. when you when you present yourself as the middle finger. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's just people aren't going to be super receptive to that energy, no matter how right you are. Uh, as, as someone who has a few priors in that regard, I agree with that assessment. <laughs> um Yeah, I, I, I think that's all really astute and insightful. I, I, I think... I, I read a really interesting um, comment. Um, Nellie Altenberger, who's a contemporary of ours, like she's a rabbi working on the East Coast. She she makes awesome stuff on Safaria. I'll just say, shout out to her. Right, her I feel stuff like she's is always awesome. she's always like the first or second source sheet that I end up looking at. She her stuff is awesome, so and yep. and she had a whole source sheet on this. Um, and and she made the point on her source sheet, and I think it rings too, <laughs> rings true. No one is in the right here. Right. Like, like, like everyone is sort of off base in terms of how they're acting in this context, particularly through the lens of this midrash. Um, and, and I think that that's it. That's always interesting to me. Right. It's always interesting to have like morally gray stories in the Torah. I think that's fascinating. Um, Denise, the one piece I'll layer in is is maybe right. You're saying, well, why didn't he have a place? Maybe he did have a place and he was trying to make a move to get back into the normative community. 
right? Like, like maybe he had been on the outside. He, he's trying to come back in, right? And now, um, right? Now, now this is when this, this complaint and this, and this crisis, um, is, is emerging. I see, I see a bunch of hands on this. Um, so, so Bonnie, you were up first and then Joanna. Yeah. Um, well, my first thought was when we were talking about whether his mother was an Israelite and matrilineal descent, uh, we have the example of the daughters of Zelophehad, you know, given a place in their tribe. So he should be by that standard there. Yep. But the other immediate response I had is a, is a modern one in that we are still struggling with that whole concept of who fits in where, given who our parentage and our group. Absolutely. A- a- absolutely. And, and I think that 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 theme is definitely part of what I find so striking about the Midrash. Right. Like that that strikes me as something that is is always a question. Right. Where do you really belong? And, and how do you respond or react when when you feel like you can't find your place? Um, I, I mean, I, as we're, as we're talking through it now, like thinking about a, a, a place in the camp and having a tent, I, I can't help but to think of stuff happening in our city um, in terms of encampments and people being told this place that you think is your place actually isn't your place. Um, and even with the best of intentions, how upset it can make people um, that it, that that veers veers right up to the edge of, of, of how political I often get on these, but I'll just say thematically, I can't help but to think of that. Um, and, and on more of that like individual existential level, I think it's a question that all of us have, right? Where do I really belong? Where's my place in a community? Where's my place within this tribe? And how hurtful and painful it can be when you get told this place that you think is yours or this place that you want to be yours? Nah, that's not for you. Um, and how painful that can be. Uh, Joanna. So I too was thinking about Benot's Lovkad and some interesting things popping into mind there Um, in terms of like, these are both stories where it seems like, you know, talking about people a little bit on the outside or the fringe to the extent, especially back then that, you know, women would be considered, you know, not part of the main male dominant patriarchal society. Um, You know, the Torah doesn't bother to think about those elements until the situation presents itself, you know, as opposed to having a little foresight. Oh, there are these other people in our community. You know, we should anticipate what, what might happen in these situations. And, um, had also like, to me, it, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't make this midrash then work for me when I think about Benot Slovchad, because they're treated so much kinder. And even though there's like sort of a take back at the end of the story when members of their tribe come forward and say, um, um, hey, this isn't going to work for us because if they can inherit property, we're going to lose land. So then there's um, a restriction put on that they have to marry within the tribe. Right. So two things about that. One, it points to very much this worry about like who's inheriting land and who's getting land. But Javka in that story, Benot Slovchad in, in, in making their claim are referred to as Sotkot, that they're, that they're correct, that it was right for them to bring forward a claim. So that highly contrasts to what's going on in this story. 
Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the more we're talking about it, the more that the pair, I, I hadn't thought of that narrative parallel in terms of, and, and again, like I'll, to, to which I'll add the parallel of Benot Sofchad, particularly through the lens of this Midrash, right? It's not necessarily in the shot of the Torah, but through the lens of this Midrash in terms of what our rabbis are suggesting might be happening here, tracks in some very interesting ways, particularly in terms of the contrast, right? They say, hey, we we deserve this this sort of proverbial seat at the table. And they're told they're right, so coat. Um whereas here, Dafka the opposite. So yeah, it is it is a very interesting um contrast. Contrast even. Uh Renee. I I don't know. I, I kind of feel feel it as a mother and I feel like, you know, he wants to be with his mom and he feels like he deserves to be with his mom. So maybe he was more reactive and he didn't, you know, deal with it appropriately or in a, in the most effective manner. But I think his intentions were honorable or appropriate. Yeah. Particularly through this midrash, it's hard to fault this guy, right? He, he's definitely made into, into being a pretty sympathetic character, as it were, right? He, he, who doesn't want a home? Right. He certainly seems quite sympathetic in this narrative, which is also an interesting inversion. Right. When you when you first read it, it's just like, oh, these two guys, they're fighting and he and he commits blasphemy. Oh, this guy. Um, but this Midrash presents an interesting um, sort of uh, sympathy. It's, it's like this Midrash is like uh, it's like the, the wicked to the Torah's Wizard of Oz. Right. It's like it's like making the the, the Wicked Witch of the West into a sympathetic character. Uh, is your is your Broadway reference uh, of the day? I was listening to Rent earlier this morning, so it's so it's a, it's a Broadway Friday. I'm not quite sure why, but but uh, but here we are. Um, I, I'll just say Rabbi Schatz hasn't hasn't fled because she didn't like the midrash. She had she had an uh, an urgent call come through uh, that she needs to that she needs to take. Um, so, but I'm going to take us into this next midrash, which I'm going to guess. People are going to like a little bit less, but it's still a very interesting one. And of course, those those can often be uh, uh, fun ones to explore as well. So this this last midrash was responding to this question of wh- why the vayetzer, right? Like why why does the the Torah go out of its way um, to to begin with with that verb? This next midrash and thematically almost seems to be directly at odds. Um, with what our last midrash saw, right? A quick reminder: Torah is multivocal, midrash is multivocal. Just because something is part of the same collection of midrashim, it doesn't mean that the rabbis agree with each other. The rabbis might have lived at completely different times and never have met each other, right? But it's a collection of midrashim, and thematically, this midrash seems to be going in a very different direction. And it's asking the question, from my perspective, why the name, right? Why do we get the name placed where it is, and why do we get the name at all, right? This name of Shlomit Ben uh, Batibri, rather. Wh- what is that name, and and why do we have it? Um, okay, so here we... From the same collection of Midrashim, Vayikra Rabbah, Rav Huna said in the name of Bar Kapara, due to four things Israel was redeemed from Egypt. Right? We got redeemed for four different reasons. They did not change their names nor their language, right? We kept our names the same. We kept we kept speaking it of tongue. They did not speak Lashon Hara. So uh, interesting how we've evolved as a people. Uh, and there was none that had committed sexual immorality. Those were the four reasons we got redeemed from Egypt. You say that there was none 
who committed sexual immorality. Oh, Rav Huna, really? Nobody in all those years in Egypt? Well, there was one, and the text announced her. The name of his mother was Shlomit Bat Dibri of the tribe of Dan. Shlomit, as Rabbi Levi says, she would continuously say shalom to all she encountered, a, a thinly veiled euphemism there. Bat Dibri, Rabbi Yitzchak says she brought a plague, this idea of dever, right? Le daber can be speech and dever, you might recognize from the Haggadah, can also be a plague. She brought a plague on her son. Oh, Ilan already has his hand up. Of the tribe of Dan, a shame for his mother, a shame for him, a shame for his family, a shame for the tribe from which he came. Like I said, thematically, almost completely the opposite. Bonnie is shaking her head. Uh, thematically, almost completely the opposite of where we last were. And before Elon lays into this midrash, I'll just say again, like responding to the question, however unsatisfactorily from a thematic perspective, why the name, right? Why is the name given? And the midrash is saying maybe this. Yes, Elon. So my my <laughs> great my my greatest objection to this midrash is actually the beginning of it, which is <laughs> the absurdity of the the four things Israel four reasons Israel was redeemed from Egypt. Not change their names, okay, could be. They did not change their language, probably. They did not speak Lashon Hara, and there was none that had committed sexual immorality is absurd, right? And and to even state that is absurd. Would like so? Why would that? It it doesn't make sense to me, right? With like, of course that did not happen. So, so you're you're taking issue with the the premise to begin with, right? That that this seems to be, and I'll I'll problematize it further, which is, don't people deserve to be redeemed from slavery regardless, right? Like, why is well, there a, why? exactly right? That's the exact point. They they like what these things are ridiculous. There's zero chance that they did not commit Lashon Ra or commit sexual immorality. How dare you insult our ancestors, <laughs> particularly Ilan? How, as, da- how dare you besmirch them? Particularly as sexual particularly as sexual immorality was defined at that time, right? There's no chance. So and, and so you're right you're right that it's actually not particularly relevant because they were slaves and the, the, just that in and of itself. But then to to say this, I don't know why he felt it necessary to say that. Fair enough. Fair and, and then on top of that, to I can't remember the exact place, but the, the notion that um, that let's, for the sake of argument, uh, agree that, which I don't, but I'll, I'll, I'll give them that what uh, this uh, person's mother did was immoral. Okay, the the notion that he should be punished for his mother's immorality is crazy, right? So the whole thing is just offensive. And a, a concept that we take issue with, to be sure, today, and with ample reason. And again, a reminder that within the construct of the Torah, the concept of generations having sin of parents revisited on them, at least within the construct of the Torah itself, pops up frequently, 
right? That the edit, the the one of the greatest rabbinic edits of all time. When you think about the thirteen attributes that we say often in our liturgy, we cut it off at v'nakeh, right? That God cleanses. But if you keep reading the verse, it says v'nakeh lo yin. <laughs> <laughs> right? That it actually, that the, that the misdeeds won't be cleansed so easily and that they will be visited upon the generations immediately afterwards. So again, a notion that we take issue with for good reason, um, and still one that, that pops up in more than one place in, uh, Joanna, you've had your hand up for a moment or two and then Denise. Um, Two things. One is, I wonder if this Midrash can be saved a little bit, not in terms of, um, you know, um, whether or not you did these four things, does it mean that you should be a slave, but that they were redeemed from Egypt as Israel, right? That they kept their identity all these years so that when they were freed, they were still Israelites. They had it through all the slavery. These things kept them as Israelites. But um, more to the point, reading this Midrash, um, I think it was Renee who brought up in the beginning the, the question of matrilineal descent. And it's not clear to me that marrying someone outside the Israelite nation is sexual immorality. And we know certainly from the other side that it was okay. Both Joseph and Moses marry from the outside. You know, so if the key leaders can do it, why not everyone else? And also there seems to be a, at the time of the Exodus, at least, there seems to be a generally kind of okay attitude towards others kind of amalgamating with us, right? Um, there's a comment somewhere about the Erev Rav, the, the, the riffraff, the extras who kind of tagged along and apparently were welcome to do so. So it's not clear to me what is so terrible in the, in the time, place and context that this story is taking place in about a woman marrying someone who is not an Israelite. The, the, again, the way the phrases in the Torah are somewhat baffling, right? Like it, it, it's definitely confusing. I, I think also part of what this Midrash is doing in terms of I, I the, the, <laughs> the Midrashic description of a licentious woman as someone who says shalom to everyone is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just a, a very funny way of, of describing that. Um, oh, you know her. She says shalom to everybody. Um, and, and I think that that's part Rabbi Shantz like that. Um, I mean, it's I what think, I thought, too. When I read it, that's exactly what I thought. Um I think it's part of also trying to backfill why why she's so problematic, right? That it's not just a one or two time thing, right? In terms of what she was doing, that this was a habitual pattern of behavior that they're reading into her name in terms of why he might be excluded from the camp. And it is also a consistent vein, Joanne, to your point, like we hear about the Erev Rav in the Torah who left Egypt, right? And they were part of a mixed multitude. And then in rabbinic texts, they go back and say, that the Erev Rav are to blame for like the golden calf, 
right? That, that there is a move in rabbinic literature to sort of try to idealize the people who are really a part of the community and the people who don't really belong. We can talk about sort of historiographically why that does show up in rabbinic literature here and there, but I think it's, it's certainly a through line um, that we see in a, in a few different places. I, I see there's hands. I want to, I'm going to give away the the punchline because I also want to make sure there's time for Denise and Elon has, has more beef with the rabbis um, and I also want to leave, leave room for, for Rabbi Shatz if she wants to teach a bit too before we wrap up, unless she's going to punt for today. Um, but I'll, I'll just say what I think is interesting in terms of juxtaposing these two Midrashim sort of back to back is I think we can see in here sort of the, the two different ways in which our tradition really wrestles with people who do and don't believe. Right. I think in that first Midrash that we looked at, there's a very clear sense that this is a person who is sympathetic and really deserves a place. And in the second Midrash, we see like some real blaming and shaming in terms of because of something you did or because of who you are, you don't really belong. And I think fortunately and unfortunately, we see those threads throughout our tradition over time. Right? There are there are plenty of texts that speak to each of those, um, and I think it's just really really interesting to see them like back to back like that on basically the same set set of sukim. Interesting thing. Uh, yeah, Denise. So it just seems weird if the medrash is saying, okay, there were four like ennobling things that we did, and one of them was was not doing sexual whatever things. And then the other one was not speaking Lashon Ara. And then in like the same breath, they're saying that the Torah mentions her name because she did those things. But isn't that Lashon Ara to mention it? That, that if, that they didn't do, well, maybe, maybe she's, uh, maybe she's, she's like, you know, double minkam, like double your pleasure, double your fun, right? It's like sexual immorality and Lashon Hara, right? She, she, no, not that she spoke it. Oh, not that oh, she that... spoke Lashon Hara, but I'm saying like, like to, to mention, oh, her oh, oh. to introduce that, that part of the storyline is itself Lashon Hara. It, right, because again, Lashon Hara isn't spreading mistruths, it's sharing information that isn't necessary to be shared, right? There's a difference between yeah. Rechilut and, and Lashon Hara. Rechilut is spreading slander and lies. Lashon Hara is just saying something that doesn't need to be said. So Denise, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, saying, isn't this embodying Lashon Hara by sharing these details that don't really need to be shared? Exactly my point right thank you brings it which brings us back to the question right sort of like a little bit of an uruburos there right well then why was her name mentioned and so we have to come up with it maybe it's because of that but isn't it lashon hara uh ad infinitum potentially um but yeah it's a great it's a great point ilan so i want to come back to the theme of who belongs and who doesn't belong and I'm, i'm assuming that the rabbis suggested that uh and, and the Torah suggests that um if you sin your uh descendants are stuck with that as a means of discouraging 
sin, right? So that it's it's dealing with that generation. But the problem in uh, in the second midrash that you that you showed, and in general in this theory, is given that, and if you are happen to be uh, the descendant of Bernie Madoff or Bugsy Siegel or Meyer Lansky, according to that, you're screwed. There's, there's, you, you are stuck with the sins of, of your forefathers and, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Right. And you therefore don't belong, which is, I'm curious whether there is an anecdote to that, where, uh, or antidote to that, right. Where actually you can, um, distance yourself from the sins of your forefather and and belong. Yeah, I, I I think you know I was talking about one of the grandest rabbinic edits. I mean I, I I do think there is certainly a strong thread in rabbinic literature of of moving away from that sort of in, inherited sin, right? I think that is something that that shows up often, just as the just as like the death penalty is basically legislated out over the course of rabbinic literature. I think it's very much uh, an emphasis on placing more agency on the actions an individual takes rather than like familial or inherited sin. Um, Rabbi Schatz, I don't know if you have like an anecdote or a text that comes to mind, like readily for you on that but i th- i think it's fair to say that it it pops up um with regularity yeah sorry i am 98% distracted by um stuff that is going on right now that i have to be attentive to um uh so i'm glad that this has been a wonderful conversation and to say that i know what's going on in it would be <laughs> would be dishonest um i will just share not knowing if you spoke about this but i will just share that the thing that was most interesting to me was the piece of um the piece of identity that i forget now who brought it up in the kushio of why is it important for us to know who's the Israelite versus who's not the Israelite um, and the intermarriage piece of that, uh, especially because it's such a hot topic in modern day Judaism. Um, so let me see if I have a quick something that I can share. Again, sorry for the distraction. It's You can, you're, you're good. You're good. I'll circle back to, okay. to the piece that I think Alan was asking about more, okay. more locally, which is this idea of like um, inherited inherited sin basically as opposed to personal agency uh-huh. uh, and and i think um well Rabbi, were you going to share the the bit about the ishmeet three were you going to talk were you going to talk about that no i actually don't think i have that as one of my i focus much more on the first verse than the other verses but you can go go ahead well it's it's interesting to like locally close the gap a little bit within the verses. Um, I thought Rabbi Shet, you were like hinting at this before. Oh, the Moshe piece. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. I can share that. I can share that one thing to show that I No, you can take a, you know, you're doing great. You're, you're doing great. Take a break. I'm not you're good. Okay. You're good. It's almost Shabbos. Take it easy. I got you. I, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I have it. I have it. I'll just Okay. Very good. All right. (laughs) Okay. So this was what I was alluding to earlier. Thank you for reminding me. Um, uh, So this piece here that Rashi brings is that the Ish Mitzri, who we're talking about without a name, as again, I don't remember who it was, but brought up the idea of we know the mother's name, but not the father's name. 
Um, Rashi and also Ibn Ezra seem to claim that this was the Egyptian who Moses killed, that his son is now the one who we are dealing with. But the Ish Mitzri, who doesn't have a name in that story, also doesn't have a name, obviously, in this story, but that the connection is that he was the one who was killed by Moshe in that very famous scene before um, the Israelites leave Egypt. So I thought that was very interesting because there is this element of, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the rabbis are trying to come up with explanation and they take it real far back <laughs> to try to figure out who is this guy? Why doesn't he have a name? And why is it important for us to know not only his location, but his connection to Moshe? Um, so yeah, very interesting. I also thought that it was maybe a little bit comical, that Ibn Ezra, even though it's an Ish Mitzri, Ibn Ezra wants to make sure that we know that he converted to Judaism, right? So there was not intermarriage. There was, this was a man who was... Uh, well, I, read it, I read it as he was saying that the, the man in the camp converted to Judaism. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. I read it definitely not that way. Ah, okay. Yeah, I guess we can both be right. And it's hard. To con- it's hard. I mean, I'm not an expert, but it is hard to convert to Judaism when you're dead. No, no, I, I don't know that Ibn Ezra is saying that he that 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 he's the guy who Moses killed. So, okay, uh, Renee, go ahead. Okay, I thought you were talking, saying that he was the descendant of the guy that Moshe killed, and that was a little confusing to me because it said that he he had a Jewish mother, so that didn't. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it, he it had. He could have had a Jewish mother. Um, who, where the father died after the son was born, and he was the he died because he was killed by Moshe. The 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 connection is that there's an anonymous Ishmitsri in that story, and there's an anonymous Ishmitsri in this story. And the Torah always wants to have like an economy of characters, basically. And so, oh, Ishmitsri here must also mean Ishmitsri. There and there's there there are more detailed midrashim that talk about like basically <laughs> because because of that also connects Shlomit Bat Divri's like sexual immorality with that Ish Mitzri and so yeah. like it all like so the then Marvel, it's possible the, that the, the, guy... the midrash cinematic universe of of everything that that's happening uh, in, in these verses. So it's possible that the guy that Moshe killed was also also had a Jewish mother. No, no. It, I, I mean, I sure it's possible. Um, I think it's saying that like, Mister, let's let's call him Tony, right? So Tony the Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian go, name. Yeah, mm-hmm. Tony. Tony the Egyptian goes okay. and has a sexually immoral experience with um, this Israelite woman. Later on, Tony is a bad slave master dude. Moses kills Tony. Shlomit then has this son, and this son is now the guy in the story who blasphemes. It's Tony's son. We're talking about the probably son. remarkably unhelpful, but it's the best I could do. I don't okay. buy it. I, Bonnie doesn't buy it. I also don't buy it. <laughs> you, because you don't like his name's Tony, or or, or what? Yeah, that, actually the Tony piece is what really um, set me over the edge. Um, no, I think... I, I, I mean, I'd be interested actually to hear why Bonnie doesn't buy it. And then I can share if I have a different reason. Do you want to share, Bonnie? Well, I, I just think it's a stretch to make him be the guy that was killed, you know. And I, I don't really know. I'd have to look more carefully at the, at the piece as to where along 
in our journey in the desert we are and whether that's even you know physically possible, possible for these people to be these same people yeah. and uh, and again i'm more concerned with the with the peace of being part of a people and who's allowed in and who's not yes yes and and now that you said that i i do realize that you probably then had that conversation so sorry for inserting myself in the last 10 minutes but um yeah, I agree. I think that, that it's very much a stretch to imagine that over the generations that we still have connection back to that random person who was killed by Moshe. And to Rabbi Shapiro's point, the, the Torah has this economy of language that if they're using the same phraseology for a person in that story, Ibn Ezra wants to use, uh, or sorry, Rashi wants to use him as the same person in this story, but I agree with you that that it it probably wasn't the same actual human. But I do wonder what does that make us think in terms of the story of of the person in this in this Leviticus version, right? Like who who was this guy? What did he come from? Um, if he's actually being compared to the man in that story with Moshe, Rajvira, any last thoughts? You did it. I'm, I know, even without having listened, you did a great job today. Oh, thank. I, I love that it's assumed that I did a great job. It's completely unearned. Also, um, Elon but, is nodding, so I assume that it's true. Cool. Thanks, guys. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go counter to popular opinion here. I'm gonna say I like that we get connected to the Ishmitri here, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, a, I think the economy of characters is cool. I, I, I like it when that happens, even if it's like unlikely that the ages work out. I think it's, I think it's nifty. You may quote me on that. I think it's nifty when, the, when the midrash like connects pieces in that way. I, I also think there's something to it, Bonnie, to, to what you're saying in terms of who's in and who's out. I think there's also a piece here of like accumulated pain and accumulated mm-hmm. grief and how when we've experienced pain, unless we resolve it, it can impact us and how we behave when we're included or excluded. Mm-hmm. And if this is a guy who had a, a tragic and excluded experience in his past, it makes him more likely to do something that's really, really problematic. It doesn't excuse it. doesn't mean it's okay. But I think it, it makes sense to me within that matrix of factors to think about how those pieces... Um, that that he might that he really shouldn't have done. He might regret, and it doesn't excuse it, um, but it, but it could accumulate kind of way. Um, and I think that for all of us, as as we're coming out of a time when we've had a lot of really difficult things accumulate, I think that impacts all of us, right? I, I think it, it impacts the way we interact with the world and with each other and how we carry ourselves. Um, and so out of these cryptic verses, I think there's something interesting to think about in terms of how we include and exclude where we feel at home and where we feel sort of out of the camp. And in turn, how the things that can accumulate and, and make things more difficult for how we experience the world challenge us to, to restrain those impulses for problematic behavior, um, to, to still sort of stay within the camp and build the kind of communities that we want to be living in. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, 
go to tbala.org.